to serve, protect, and entertain in honor of the RoboCop remake, what or who was your favorite on-screen law enforcement? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Edwina Ed McDonough from Raising Arizona because turn to your right. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven. Hands down, the cussing, ticketing machine and demolition man. And hands down, because these hands would get covered in seashell splattered poop otherwise. Katie, I just want to applaud your impression of Edwina. Just it's that southern uh, blood. <laughs> I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with the police from The Purge, because they took a day off where so that murder could be legal for one night. Fuck the police! Uh, I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going with Cop 633, as played by Tony Lung in... Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, if only because, uh, as you'll hear from my Berlin dispatch, I got Tony Lung on the brain this week. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room number 10 for February 11th, 2014. Thank you again for the iTunes reviews. If you haven't left one yet, now is the time we need them. We'll even, you you can pause right now. We'll wait for you to uh, go leave that review. So just hit pause. We'll be right here when you get back. Uh, Just think of how much you enjoyed Patches Matches last week and uh, talking about Dr. Strangelove and uh, all the other great things we brought you. The reviews help us a lot. We appreciate them when they're there. If you've been slacking off so far, there's no excuse. It's free. This isn't even like an NPR pledge drive where we want your money. We just want your attention. So please keep leaving reviews and thank you. David, you're, you're calling in from Berlin. Are you okay? Can you hear me? Uh, I can hear you. I'm, uh, oh. The wall has fallen. Communication is, <laughs> yeah. uh, is Sorry, free this is, and clear. This is not the 1940s. I can hear you loud and clear. You're it's going not even clear. the 1980s. No, that's true. Uh, it's, uh, no, Berlin is, Berlin is lovely. Um, I've never been to Berlin. I don't really know. I feel like this year more than ever, I've, I'm hearing about people going to Berlin, but I guess they do. I'm a trendsetter. What can I say? I guess they do every year. Yeah, maybe it's just you being. They just heard I was going and, and heard it along after me. Well, what, what's uh, the atmosphere like? You've been to a few film festivals. Yeah, I actually I, I haven't been to Cannes, but I feel like I have complete conviction in saying this anyway. <laughs> where because uh, I just I've I've seen enough about Cannes and, and feel like I have a pretty good grasp uh, grasp on the experience. That Berlin is sort of like the love child between TIFF. And can it sounds it, like the it, lines are as nightmarish as at can um, because uh, no, there are no lines for anything. I've never, I haven't waited. Uh, uh, I, there are no lines here. <laughs> I don't know where you are. That the uh, do they have the press line... screenings? Or they make it nice for you, or yeah. I mean, yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, if you're Jeffrey Wells, and you know, if you can find something <laughs> to complain about everything, I haven't met a single person here who doesn't openly detest that man. By the way, it comes up more often than any other subject. Way off uh, topic, but I, I actually get most of my Berlin coverage from Hollywood elsewhere. So no, that's I'm being that's unfortunate. I know uh, the. I mean, if you're if you're even moderately responsible, which he is not, there is absolutely no way you're going to be missing out on the screening. If they're playing something in the Palast, which is sort of like the Berlin version of the Palais, uh, and more than sort of, it flagrantly is, all you need to do, even for the most popular titles, is show up about 45 minutes in advance and hang around with your pals for 10 minutes and get escorted into the gorgeous theater where you have ample time to find a seat. (laughs) (laughs) It really couldn't be easier. Um, And they, they treat press like kings because they have the... Some of the, the press screenings, buyers are sometimes allowed into, but even when that's the case, because the buyers have their own market, the buyers are only allowed in once all the press have been seated. Oh, wow. So for us, it's really, uh, it's really easy. And for the smaller theaters, none of which are, are really all that small, they're pretty beautiful facilities that I've only seen equaled by the multiplex at TIFF. Um, you just have to be responsible. If you get there 30 minutes early, you're not going to get shut out from a screening. So it's not uh, a hell. That's, that's it, the important is, part. It is. But... It's so lovely and convenient. <laughs> Everything is in like this one 
space. Uh, it's very like, you know, it's not a really nice representation of the city. It's a lot like a Battery Park in New York is sort of the vibe of the place. But all of these multiplexes and beautiful screening facilities and restaurants and everything are all in one uh, really centralized location. And then any of the theaters that are out of the way are all these like gorgeous old uh, landmarks, often from you know pre-war or wartime era landmarks, and so uh, it certainly justifies the trip. It's bustling with culture. Let's get let's get down to the meat here, though. Yeah, movies. Yeah, you've you've been seeing them. I've been seeing them. Um, I haven't. You I know, can't tell is... how many movies you've actually seen. It only sounds like you've been there for four days, five days, and maybe you've seen four or five movies. I've seen thirteen movies. Okay. Um, it's not that many. I mean, it's certainly the pace is is definitely not on par with something like TIFF. But uh, I could have seen more. I don't know. I'm 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 going to take a few days off altogether to see the city. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I I think I haven't really done it right necessarily. The lineup is really expansive, and you don't really have a lot of intel on the films going in because um, a lot of them are from unknown quantities. Uh, you don't. I mean, a lot of them are world premieres. And I think that I may have played it too safe thus far and gone and seen a lot of movies that were already vetted at Sundance. Um, and so, like, I'd see things like uh, Love is Strange, the Iris Axe film, which a is a lovely movie, which is a, a terrific, terrific film. And Alfred Molina is so wonderful in it. And Iris Axe uses music. In this case, it's Chopin and his previous film, Keep the Lights On. It was uh, Arthur Russell. So well as as part of the texture of the film. Um, And so I saw Love is Strange. I saw Blind, which is a Norwegian film uh, from the same, you know, posse that brought Oslo August 31st and Reprise. Um, And films like, uh, and Nymphomaniac, which uh, the uncut version screened here, even though it's 30 minutes longer than uh, the the cut version of part one, there is... Very little discernible difference. There's a little bit more penetration here and there, and there's a. It's mostly for just more dialogue between uh, Stellan Skarsgård's character and Charlie Gainsbourg's character. Now you only saw part one, or? Uh, well, uh, here they screen part one ah, of the uncut yeah. version. Right, part right, two right. will part two will screen in can. I believe it hasn't been confirmed. And there was that crazy press conference here, which of course I did not attend because it was like hell on earth. But uh, uh, with Shia LaBeouf wearing a paper bag over his head, and he is not famous stuff. anymore. He is not famous anymore. But uh, uh, and Kamiko, the Treasure Hunter, which is something I love. But and then the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is probably my favorite film of the festival thus far, uh, which I reviewed for Badass Digest, and I think is one of Wes Anderson's best films, uh, is going to be opening in the states uh, before too long. So that wasn't much of a catch, but there's a, I get the sense that in the competition and the panorama sections, there's like so much great stuff that, that you just miss. <laughs> you just don't know to see. Uh, I mean, you don't know what's going to be this year's a separation and, or you know, another film like that that premiered at Berlin to little fanfare and then ended up being this huge film. So it's, it's hard, and I think that I did play it a little bit too safe, um, and I'm hoping, given that my schedule, other than Boyhood, is loaded with movies that are going to be world premieres between now and when I leave, I'm hoping that I'll catch something that is good. Well, have, uh, you, have you seen some small films that at least take a risk and might <laughs> blow up in their faces? Or Yeah. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen a lot of really bad movies so far. Um, I've seen, uh, and that's just probably just my luck. There are two films by a rising American filmmaker named Josephine Decker that I respected but really did not enjoy. They're called Thou Wast Mild and Lovely, which is a story about a a woman on on a farm who sort of has this very sort of like primally erotic situation happening with uh, the new farmhand who's played by an unusually silent Joe Swanberg. And uh, and then there's a film that she made the year before that called Butter on the Latch, both of which were shot on like Canon 5Ds. I think they have a very sort of uh, experimental amateurish aesthetic to them. And I think she does interesting things. Or she as the Europeans the... call it, American. Right. I learned afterwards that, and this made everything make sense, that she was the woman who at the, uh, at the Marina Abramovich, the artist is present exhibit, got naked and thought that, uh, you know, people were going to be like, oh, it's so wonderful. It's an artistic expression. And but she just got <laughs> escorted out. And she is if she has that sort of removed from the reality of how a situation is going to play out, I think that's evident in her filmmaking, which does, definitely has a lot of potential. But it's not quite there. I saw an Estonian like hipster 
thing called Free Range, which was shot a beautiful 60 millimeter, but was pretty awful. It was a film called She's Lost Control, which was executive produced by Oren Moverman, who's one of my favorite humans, um, and I think is going to be at South By, but was, uh, which is about a uh, sexual surrogate like Helen Hunt in, uh, in Sep- yeah, whatever, but uh, it's for, for young people who are physically abled. Uh, and, wait, uh, wait, wait. It- so if the sessions wasn't an adult right chased drama well actually right. it's not that chased but uh this one's for kids now <laughs> <laughs> i would say for kids but young it's people definitely... have their own version okay yeah not yet. i don't know it's uh it's definitely it just takes out the handicapped element um but it's awful <laughs> i was not i was not a fan why uh, did oh can you see why Oren moverman would i really i really film? i really don't know um <laughs> I, that's a bad sign I mean, maybe they're from i don't know but uh um maybe it'll get better notices at, uh, at South by, but, um, I, one film I did like quite a bit. I did like blind, but one film I, I liked was called, uh, um, fuck was it? It's i uh, I'm looking at the French title, uh, joy of man's desiring by Denis Cote, whose last, whose film last year won the festival, uh, which was Vic and Flo saw a bear, which just came out in New York. Uh, and it's sort of like a hybrid documentary fiction film that was filmed, I think in a week's time about factory workers in French Canada, uh, and it really just looks at the – it's very rhythmic. It's like a feature-length version in a way of the uh, the song at the beginning of Dancer in the Dark where Bjork's dancing to all of the machinery sounds. <laughs> it's sort of like the symphony of all these things and, and looking at the, the place of work in uh, in human lives and how quickly we adapt to this idea of going into this factory-like setting or wherever it is that we might work for nine hours every day and sort of like that being the sort of fulcrum of our existence. So that was very interesting. Um, and I also saw Snowpiercer, which is a big question. Yeah, mark. wait. So let's talk about that because you weren't. I don't think you were that big a fan of it, and you might be losing some of the the enjoyment you had in it. I feel like I'm watching your enjoyment of Snowpiercer Close. degrade, Close. degrade your time. Uh, you've got you're like half right. Uh, I was not a giant fan of Snowpiercer, but my estimation for it is actually growing, ah. but not not uh, not in a way that's really like I still I skew positive on it, but um, I think that. Uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, those of you out there are probably familiar with the whole Snowpiercer saga, Bong Joon-ho, a Korean auteur responsible for films like Memories of Murder and The Host and Mother, uh, directing this, this sort of quasi-big budget foreign money uh, action dystopian movie, um, very political. Harvey Weinstein wanted to chop it up. What's going to happen? It's going to be released in the States, but only limited. Uh, it's, it's not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. I think that, like, the hype brigade... It's sort of gone gone rogue. Um, I, I, was, I see people at Berlin saying the best science fiction movie since Children of Men, which you know, I mean, that can be dangerous for us hearing that. But it depends what you consider science fiction to be. I mean, it's like you know, uh, it, it, it's certainly a very muscular science fiction movie in the Children of Men vein, and it has a lot of credibility to it. I think uh, it. Yeah, you know, it's it's a really it's a movie that could really only exist outside of the Hollywood system because of how uh, dark and um, and confrontational it is. And but it's actually about, and it's very appropriate this whole Harvey Weinstein struggle because the film is really explicitly about uh, the unsustainability of systems of like ideological systems of political systems of how uh, you know it's ostensibly pitting Marxism versus this weird form of capitalism with these people uh, like the proletariat marching up the train to get to this mysterious figure in the front of the car. But it's really just about how these systems are, are corroding themselves. And then like the train is just moving and moving and moving around the earth and they need to find a way to, to not take it over so much as stop it. Um, and it, you know, it's uh, it has some really inspired moments uh, and it's, some it's, you know, a wonderful location, and I think it's it's definitely a good time in the movies. But it doesn't, uh, it's 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 missing missing a little something. Why, why isn't it just Tilda Swinton on a train? Oh my god, Tilda Til- Swinton! I imagine Effie Trinket from The Hunger Games, but a she's like completely demented. There's no hint of humanity under there. I mean, but that's what makes her more human is that she is completely. Uh, resigned herself to being just evil until it's no longer convenient for her, in which case she's like, oh, I'm innocent. But, I mean, she's she's such an opportunistic 
like sinister creature and she's so funny and uh it's 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 uh in the movie it's sort of emblematic of how the movie succeeds by not being cowardly where i think a lot of like ya sci-fi and other dystopian stories uh want to be sort of like cuddly but dark and this is uh I, this is unafraid to uh go that go that extra step. And it's fun to see Tilda Swinton and Chris Evans acting against great Korean actor, uh, Song Kang-ho. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a neat, mo- it feels like it's just, it's cheap. Like they shot it on 40 days or whatever it was. And he's used to shooting 70 days or hundred days for movies that are much smaller in scale. And it looks cheap and it feels cheap and it feels rushed. Uh, and it's just too bad that, uh, that the Hollywood studio system that had the money to really do this movie right doesn't have the uh, the balls bear with yeah the balls to do it right but um, it's a it's a good movie. As we wrap this up, David, I'm curious what is what lies ahead. What can we watch your Twitter feed and your uh, blogging or what, well, whatever you do? Of, uh, lots of blogging about the lots of Twitter feeding about the jury. I'm becoming increasingly interested in the in the Berlin jury because at all the competition screenings. You can see, like, the jury sits just right in the crowd with everybody, and you can, like, sit right next to them because you can see where they're all going to sit. And the jury this year is uh, Greta Gerwig and Tony Lung and Christoph Waltz and James Seamus and Barbara Broccoli and uh, 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 what's-her-face, uh, Trina Dilholm from, uh, from the Suzanne Beer films and, like, a lot of fun, fun people and just like watching the, them form friendships with one another, and, like track their write fanfic about their various. Uh, they have relations. a yearbook at the end. They'll, they'll all yeah, sign each uh, yearbooks. It's it's like a little sideshow that I've enjoyed. So you can definitely watch that. And which which jurors are sleeping through which films? I'll never tell. Ah, uh, who have you sat next to? Uh, I've been I've been I've been sitting next to Tony Long, not like next to her, like right behind, because it's like he's it's crazy to me that he's a real person, because I just see him as like you know the star of Wong Kar Wai's films, which are sort of out of this world. But I'll be seeing. Um, let's see, what am I looking forward to? There's a new uh, Yoji Yamada film who made like the Twilight Samurai. He has a, a new film that I'm very excited about. There's a film called Aloft, which Sony Pictures Classic already bought, which stars Jennifer Connelly and Killian Murphy and Melanie Laurent. Uh, I don't really know anything about it beyond that. There's a good number of like a- a Asian films that are represented this year. Uh, there's Boyhood, of course, and then there's uh, wrapping things up towards the end with uh, a new version of Beauty and the Beast, directed by Christoph Gans and starting Vincent Cassell and Leo Sado. Oh which yes, is inc- the trailer has looked- been floating around on that one. It looks yeah. um, like a visual it looks- spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> it looks, it looks <laughs> to put it kindly, ridiculous. But uh, what's in competition? It- what could win? Do you have any idea? Or- well, you know, it always goes that the when you go to a film festival, it's the movies you don't see in competition that win. Uh, and I, all the competition movies I've seen so far have been really bad. But there, there's this movie called 71 about the Troubles that is supposed to be very, very good. Um, Stations of the Cross is like a Haneke-like thing, which is composed of like 14 uh, almost entirely static shots, which is supposed to be great. But my gut instinct is that Boyhood has this shit wrapped up. Oh, it's in competition. It's in competition. Wow, all right. Uh, it was not in competition at Sundance. No. It is in competition. It screens on Thursday morning here, and uh, I would bet money that it is going to win it in a walk. That's awesome. Well, David, hang in there. Keep eating, uh, what do they eat, strudel? Eat oh, my God, really? so many waffles and <laughs> <laughs> food here is so good. I'm getting really fat anyway. Well, good luck, and we uh, hope you come back soon. And I don't know, I'll be the Zane. Goodbye. It is a now truncated version of Patches Matches in which I wrote the questions. So it's really nothing like the Patches Matches from last week. I've lost my name. The one thing that I had in this world has been appropriated by this Sorry to the Patches family of Ambler, Pennsylvania. I'm I'm sad that your last name is Rich because it just makes me want to do bitch something, but Mm. I can't connect that to trivia. 
How about well, rich like stitch? It's, it's riches, bitches. The sewing it, um, class. Like it's your trivia? Think it through for next week. This is a mini segment, Dave. We got ground to cover. Okay, I have it. written six questions, uh, three for each of you, about this week's releases. Oh, my God. Um, I'm just going to pick a random order for you guys to go in because they're written oh, in this apparent order. All right. Um, Dave, we're going to start with you. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Which of the following is not a real plot point in the book that inspired Winter's Tale, the Akiva Goldsman movie coming out this Friday? A flying horse named a Thansor. A woman with the power of healing through touch, healing everything but her own maladies. A semi-mythical lake and village called Lake of the Kohiris. Or a master bridge builder whose purpose is to tag this world with wider and wider rainbows. I'm going to go with the... The healing touch woman. Yes. I just want to say that, yeah, whatever answer is correct, we all lose. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen so many ads for that movie, and I cannot figure out what it's about over and over again. Apparently, I mean, the book is fantastic by Mark Halprin, and I know for a fact, because I talked to Akiva Goldsman way back when, I can't even remember, what was the last movie he did? I, I interviewed him for something, and he's like, this is my passion project. I've been working oh, yeah. on it for a decade. Wow. Scary. All right. Dave has one point. Patches. Yeah. Who made his screen debut in the original 1981 Endless Love? Lionel Richie, Tom Cruise, Harold Ramis, or Patrick Swayze? Um, I'm going to go with Lionel Richie. Lionel Richie wrote the song for the movie, but it was, in fact, Tom Cruise. <laughs> really? Yeah. I was, good. I, I was hoping you would say Jim Belushi. And Jim then I'd be Belushi? Like, yeah, it was Jim Belushi, of course. Wait, why would it have been Jim Belushi? Isn't Jim Belushi in the movie? I don't. James Spader's in the movie. I think Jim Belushi. I don't it, know. It was close to James Spader's screen debut. My answer is Jim Belushi, regardless <laughs> of whatever your multiple choice answers are. Okay. Okay, fine. Dave. Yes. How many Kevin Hart movies have opened at number one? And and for the record, this is according to Box Office Mojo, not the ones that are grayed out and counted as cameos. You know what I'm talking about? These yeah. are the ones that are counted toward his lifetime total. How many Kevin Hart movies have opened number one? Yeah. How many Kevin uh, Hart movies well, are there? You don't have to because... name them. Just pick a number. Right. Well, the one opened last week, right? What did his Ice Cube, whatnot? Ride Along. Ride Along. So I'm going to say two. I'm going to say his concert movie is also the other one. Uh, his concert movie did not open at number one, though it made a ton of mo- money. The answer is four. Oh, crap. It's a Scary Movie 3. Fool's Gold. The, uh, I did not know. <laughs> the Kate Hudson, Matthew McConaughey rom-com. Uh, Think Like a Man, which was his big hit last year, and then Ride Along. And uh, oh. he he stars in About Last Night, which opens I, this week. I cannot wait for Ride Along 2, which is now <laughs> inevitable. Yeah, that's definitely going to happen. Um, okay, Patches. According to the Wikipedia entry, what other sci-fi movie inspired Edward Neumeyer to write the original RoboCop? Repo Man, Blade Runner, The Terminator, or The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension? Oof. Wait, what were, what were Blade Runner and what else? Repo Man and the Terminator uh, and Buckaroo Banzai. Go with um, Repo Man. It was in fact Blade Runner. Wow. Yeah, they uh, walked past the poster and they someone explained to him that it was about a cop hunting robots, and then he said, oh, "A robot cop." And that is how RoboCop <laughs> came to be. And no more thinking was put into the pitch. <laughs> That's pretty much I, as far our, as they uh, got. Our colleague, Matt Singer of Film Spotting SVU, keeps making a joke about Robert Cop and how funny <laughs> that would be. And that's now the movie that I really want to see. Robert Cop. That's his joke. But uh, That's true. Put that on a poster. Bob, Someone Bob photoshopped Cop. that. Yeah, Bob Cop. Okay. Uh, Dave. Yes. Uh, t- John Cusack is in a movie this week called Adult World with Emma Roberts. That's about all I know about it. Uh, what was the last John Cusack movie that opened at number one? That opened at number one? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to guess this if Dave gets it wrong, because I bet this is way back. I don't know how to time uh, what's it. The, what's the post-apocalyptic one? I can't remember the title of it. That's John what, Cusack that's was in a post-apocalyptic so movie? Yeah, he flew, he flew the plane to get oh, to the boat. 2012. But... 2012. What? I'm going to say 2012. You're supposed to tell him the answers. Well, I'm not telling him uh, the answer. I'm, I'm, I'm giving him the movie. answer to, to what I'm, he's I'm, talking I'm, about. Uh, saving you, time. It's a mini segment. You are both wrong. It is The Butler, which opened last oh. night. Oh. In which you, I know he was so convincing as Richard Nixon that you forgot. Tricky, tricky. Yeah, he was so good. Spin off, please. Okay, Pat, Patches, one last question. You have a chance to tie it up, and there is a tiebreaker, tiebreaker question. Oh, my God. Oh, shit. Uh, what is the name of the Swedish crime franchise that made RoboCop star Joel Kinnaman famous? 
Uh, that's easy money. Uh, or, what or, is the Swedish name? Is what I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, it's like it's it's basically a Star Wars character. Um, <laughs> it's like Saba Nuba or something. <laughs> You're so close. You want to keep going? Uh, it's uh, I know this. Um, no, I have no idea. My it's, yeah, a Naba yeah, something. You're, you're so close, Snabacash. Ah, Snabacash. <laughs> Snabacash is a really good. He was in the pot race scene. From <laughs> Phantom okay, Menace. Uh, there is a tiebreaker question if you want to answer it for the hell. Yeah, of just it, do it. Dave did win. Okay, how uh, t- Ride Along is the number one movie of the year so far. How much money has it made? Jesus. Oh wait, it just crossed a hundred million dollars this weekend. You so wanna, I'm gonna guess a hundred and two million dollars. One hundred and three point five. Oh, 105. Dave wins. Yeah. yeah. Double dominance. I'm keeping it tight while rolling light. Take away all the Mexican, I'm three fourths white. And my wallet's got a chain because my homies keep stealing it. I wear this cologne because the ladies be feeling it. But the cologne sets me back 50 bucks and a half. Sold my hair to cancer patients, now I'm rocking this hat. And these holes in my jeans, yeah, they aren't cosmetic. I got them caught in the fence, and that shit was electric. So I wet myself in self-defense. I got myself shocked, and it was intense. And I've never pissed quite the same sense. But my pants look cool, and I'm glad you noticed. On Sunday, I participated in a panel at the Athena Film Festival called Bechdel Test 2.0, which basically aimed to talk about the famous Bechdel test as written by Alison Bechdel in her comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For. Um, I, I mean, you guys are probably familiar with it, but just to go back over it, it is the idea of applying a test to a movie to see if it has two female characters with names who talk to each other about something other than a man. And uh, this has been around for almost 30 years. A comic strip was written in 1985. And the continually surprising things is how few movies managed to pass this test. There is a website, BechdelTest.com, that has, you know, the rundown of a year's films and whether or not they pass the test. Uh, but the issue with the Bechdel test, as was discussed in this panel, is that it's kind of limiting and that gravity will not pass the Bechdel test, but uh, the counselor will, and kind of the debate on whether or not that means it's better for feminism. So this panel, which included uh, Ingu, Ingu Kang of uh, the Women in Hollywood, Carrie Rickey was the moderator. She's the critic for the, I assume she was your film critic growing up, Patch, as being the Philadelphia paper. She was. Side note, yeah. I am in awe that I get to talk to Carrie Rickey on Twitter as like a colleague because yeah. I grew up reading her. So You are yes. a grown man. Yeah, and I got to sit next to her today. Uh, the other panelists were uh, Michelle Dean of Flavorwire and Linda Holmes of uh, NPR. And uh, I kind of wanted – basically, there were a couple of interesting, th- interesting things to take away from this panel. But I was kind of interested in the way that the presumption of the panel was Bechdel test is old. It needs to be thrown away. Let's figure out ways to get rid of it. And while I've kind of agreed with all the ways that it can be limiting and it's kind of uh, – it's kind of damaging in the same way that the whole strong female character archetype is limiting and that it kind of puts women in one box that can be checked. I was wondering if you guys felt ready to get rid of it because I don't really. I feel like it hasn't overstayed its welcome and I feel like the fact that so many films still fail to pass it indicates that it's still a useful indicator of what a movie is or is not doing for women. Do, do you well, guys Are you guys with me on this? I, I am with you because there's clearly an extreme problem. Um, with the types of movies we're making, and that's what it's really about. It's not about the minutia, necessarily. So I, I, I'm frustrated by the fact that the Bechdel test has become something that we talk about every time a movie comes out. Um, but I do think it's something in, in like a, you know, the, mo- the, the website, BechdelTest.com, if we look at a year in movies and see how many fail, that is an interesting statistic to me. I still think that we should hold movies accountable to this test just to know um, how many of these seem to be, you know, that, that, that we don't have a diversity necessarily. Um, we were talking about before the podcast how I, I'm more interested in not necessarily applying the Bechdel test to every movie, but if we looked at the career of Michael Bay, for instance, how many of Michael Bay's movies um, pass the Bechdel test? Someone who seems to be coming under fire for not having interesting female characters time and time again. I mean, is this a major problem? Um, and is there a real diversity year to year? I think that we need a test like this as, as a, a macro examination of the industry and the films that come out. Not necessarily something that we need to scrutinize each movie for because, as you mentioned with Gravity, perfect example, not a film that should be held to the Bechdel test necessarily because it's not in the ambition. It's not part of the story to really accommodate for that. It sh- movies don't have to accommodate for the Bechdel test. But certain movies perhaps should um, be, be, be tested by it in a way. 
Yeah. I mean, it, for me, the test is something that you apply after the process is done to sort of reflect in a way criticism. It's a metric like a mean or an average is. And for what Pat just said about it's more useful when looking at a large set of data than it is individually is because if it becomes a core individual tract, then it becomes, um, I guess, as offensive as what it's trying to, you know, sort of. Uh, dry out the line it's trying to draw in the sand becomes a lot more hazy if it becomes a rule where you either have to pass it or you don't and that's how you judge whether or not a movie's good because hopefully we're still treating these things as art and they're still representative of an experience and people can still understand that their experiences outside of them what it was initially used for and i think it's used in the comic is that how few of these uh movies pass the test is more just a way to look at how cinema isn't showing a specific type of voice in a lot of movies. Yeah. It's not to say that there hasn't been, you know, really good feminist cinema or cinema about uh, minority classes or races uh, done by those people for those people. It's just in terms of the overall mass that we have, uh, we as a culture don't, on average, pass this test. Well, I- the... Well, okay. I was gonna. I was just gonna say that um, if you're making a film about the male experience, does the male experience necessarily need to be held up to the Bechdel test? No. I think of a movie like the uh, that awkward moment, which David and I reviewed on the show a few weeks ago. A horrible, misogynistic film. Terrible. A terrible movie. I'm offended by this film. It doesn't pass the Bechdel test, to my knowledge, um, but it doesn't need to. I don't actually think that this movie is terrible because it fails to give its female characters the platform that the Bechdel test necessarily demands. Um, Because at a certain point, you're making a film about the male experience. It's about the conversations that men have um, and about their points of view on dating, sex, relationships, love, life. Um, Does it need to be as thorough as what the, what the, uh, the Bechdel standard? I don't necessarily think it does. Um, but this movie is misogynistic on its own terms because yeah. of other reasons. Um, so does it? Yeah, it doesn't need to pass the Bechdel test necessarily. Well, to think but... of a um, to think of an example with a better movie, I think a better movie, Wolf of Wall Street, would not pass the Bechdel test. But it's about masculinity. It's about this world in which women really weren't considered part of the equation unless they acted exactly like men. I think it's. I mean, if we're I don't think any of us are actually encouraging that movies stop examining masculinity, although you could argue that it's been overly examined compared to anything regarding women. But yeah, there's a, I mean, if you, you can choose to boycott any movies that don't pass the Bechdel test, but that's going to severely limit what you're actually able to experience in terms of cinema. But then you look at movies that maybe are making more of an effort and kind of are trying being like, oh, you look, we're throwing a bone to women that then also don't pass the Bechdel test, like Pacific Rim, which has this one uh, character with the one played by Rinko Kihuchi, but she doesn't have any there's basically no other women in the movie who matter and that that kind of sheds an interesting light on what that movie actually is accomplishing and how progressive it really is when you basically just have this one exception to an action movie that is otherwise pretty now what's your thought on that what it what does pacific rim fails the bechdahl test no i I mean i'm interested to hear more on your perspective katie on pacific rim specifically because i mean that is a movie that fails the bechdahl test is that is that correct? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think there are women in it. I think it is an egregious um, error in the film. Well, I think it's kind of crazy that they, you know, this movie does a really admirable job of having racial diversity, which is another thing that giant action movies are terrible about doing. And we can talk about that more later. Um, so it goes out this way to include this wide variety of. Uh, people of other races, but basically no other women except this one character. And she's a reasonably well-developed character. I'm not crazy about the script of Pacific well, yeah, Rim or a lot the, of things the, about it. But she yeah. overcomes oh, her female gender in this movie. That's part of uh, what, wait, what, wait, oh, what do you mean? Wait, what? wait. No, 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 she doesn't. She just <laughs> overcomes her own past. It's weird that, I mean, it's weird that you choose Pacific Rim just because I don't think any character was well-served in that place. And there is the Russian girl as well. And I think it was a story that was going for international appeal before it was going for, you know, feminist appeal. But that's the way you're going to slant if you're trying to sell a movie to China. Sure. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's a weird movie to pick, but I keep thinking about like when I was in screenplay school. It was around the same time that Robert McKee was going around doing huge story things, being like your first act has to end on page thirty six, and your reversal has to come here. And everybody was supposedly buying screenplays by like flipping open to that page and seeing if that act break like happened 
on that page. And that's the sort of thing that happens when you put, you know, like rules and tests and whatever before the actual telling of your story. Sure. So, I mean, it, it's it's weirder. It, it would be weirder. It's It would be weirder for me if Pacific Rim had a character that I felt it really served more than it served Renko. Because I think like she gets the most complete story basically because Charlie can't really act his way out of <laughs> the mech in this case. So, uh, well, can but we pick I'm, another I mean, movie to talk about. Well, but, but, I mean, but I'm, I, I'm just looking. At I, I don't think that a script needs to be. I don't think a, a script needs to be written with the Bechdel test in mind. But what it needs to be is, um, you know, Pacific Rim is reaching for diversity, and it's a workplace movie in some kind of way, um, and it's about how humanity continues on and can fight together. But if you're going to portray humanity you know, the human race coming together, then it should be more diverse. You know, we have well, so, two female characters in Pacific Rim and it should, there should be more. And it's not, well, a, it's not a question of thinking about the Bechdel test and having rules necessarily when you're writing your script. It's just natural to see more women. And it, well, that's see, let's, the sort let's, of, that's when I think it's egregious. Let's take it with something like Pacific Rim, which I think was reaching for racial things over sexual things, versus something like Starship Troopers, which is very similar, but definitely wanted to integrate the sexes and show that they were both, you know, everybody was fighter pilots and they all flew together and some were infantry and it doesn't even matter the sexes outside of the fact that they have it. Whereas something like Pacific Rim went the other way because, like, Starship Troopers is incredibly white and Aryan. But you're suggesting there that you well, can only that's have satire. one or the other. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not suggesting that we can't have one one of the yeah, other. Yeah, diversity I'm suggesting that... like uh, uh racial diversity and gender diversity is not mutually exclusive. Right, but I'm saying like if we're going to talk about whether or not this test should be used, I don't think Pacific Rim is necessarily the best thing well, to bring up on because it has like its best served character is a woman. Well, I'm looking at the list of the movies that do I would have Bechdel tests from 2013 okay. <laughs> um, based on this website, BechdelTest.com, and I can't prove half of these. But the ones that pass the Bechdel test include The Conjuring in August Osage County and Blue is the Warmest Color, obviously, and The Call and The Counselor, as mentioned before. I mean, enough said, the Nicole Hollison movie, which is kind of one of the best examples. Drinking Buddies, a Joe Swanberg movie, a guy who's famous for making so movies. So movies no one saw. Dude. And by no, no, the and by no one, I mean like. The, the Conjuring a million people saw. Okay, uh, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters passes the test. Not, not the many heat. people saw that in this country. <laughs> it's true. I mean, there's just a really wide variety of movies that can pass it. So, I, I mean, I agree with you, Dave, that, like, if you're writing your movie and you're being like, oh, no, at the certain pages, women have to talk to each other. But, like, that's unimaginative. Like, but none of these movies you're naming are the huge summer blockbusters, save the for heat maybe and the, the conjuring heat. oh you're and right I, you named two of of four uh, months of blockbusters uh also iron man 3 also the hunger games pat uh, iron man 3 passes yeah there's actually i remember the scene specifically when gwyneth paltrow i mean it's kind of debatable because they're talking they're about, talking like, about plotting. tony stark no there's well they're talking about plots to take over the world it's i don't know it, they're, they're talking about technical things they're warring it's, over it's a debatable. man that is bullshit there's literally a, uh, a little exclamation mark next oh to it. patches you want to amend the test do you welcome back to the topic <laughs> well, well i i think what we're saying here is that the bechdel test is a starting point for this examination and can't be the definitive. You can't live by just the cut and dry rules, black and no, white, what passes, what yeah. doesn't. It's a starting point for conversation. But I will say that I see a lot of culture critics writing off the Bechdel test at this point, saying like, oh, my God, Bechdel test, amateur hour, to even involve it in a conversation. And I think that's wrong. I actually think that that's really limiting and and, and stunts the conversation that we should I be mean, having about these films. I I agree, but it's like Iron Man 3, I think, is a much better example to talk about if the test should be applied or should be changed because it has not it passes the test technically, as we were just told, but it also has that thing that Katie was talking about that's sort of also become a cliche, which is like the female action hero in its climax. It goes yeah. out of its way to make Gwyneth Paltrow save Tony Stark and save the world, even though, you know, that may or may not be something that Pepper Potts would have thought about doing in previous movies, and maybe it doesn't need to happen to the character. But, it, I mean, the, would you patches feel better if there were more female characters in Iron Man 3 somehow? Well, there are, actually. That's the funny thing. There's a bad guy who's a female who's totally underwritten when against the male uh, goon. 
the male goon goes after Tony the whole movie, and all of a sudden there's a female goon. Who oh shows yeah, I up. forgot about her. But like, why not have her be a more essential part of the of the film or equal screen time? Uh, uh, because what a female can't really be, and it's just like a nod to the comics or something. I don't really yeah, understand. Yeah, but I mean, that. does does that there's opportunities the for then... it? There's not, nothing had to be forced in Iron Man three to have more female. Well, I mean, but it passes but... the test. So where do you think well, it barely could do we better? acknowledge that fact? Barely. Okay, but, but where do you think it could do better? You think that they should have another henchman? I mean, there's just there's a variety yes. of roles in any movie that are that are by default played by men that could always be played by women. They don't have to be speaking parts. It could be a it could have been a little girl instead of a little boy who he's helping around. He crash lands in North Carolina. There's a there's a lot of options there that I think Dave though like I realize that you're playing devil's advocate in a way, but you're thinking being yeah. like, well, are we supposed to stifle creativity to be able to work more women into this? I think it's stifling creativity to not try. Like, I think it's a laziness that allows p- people to default to male roles for almost everything. I mean, I think what I'm getting towards is that there are certain archetypes that are attached to gender and there are certain archetypes that aren't attached to gender. And is it really going to help or hurt us in blockbuster movies if we switch those gender archetypes? I'm not necessarily sure that it well, will or it won't. Wait, here's what I mean. Like, I, think, I think if you see a lot of the summer blockbusters, you'll... On the BechdelTest.com, is that, is that correct? Yeah. Is that the yeah, URL? I think you'll at. see a lot of, especially the Marvel movies. Let's take the Marvel movies because you were obsessed with them. Um, <laughs> they will all get the smiley face with an exclamation point. They're like barely passing the Bechdel test, which is why we can't be cut and dry about this. But they're failing. I mean, let's be honest. These are not diverse movies. They're just throwing in bits. You know, I'm thinking about Thor The Dark World. Yeah, I'm, Thor I'm is positive really weird that passes the Bechdel test. But this is not a movie – it underserves characters like Sif. It underserves Jane Foster as a character. And clearly there's actually material cut out of the movie that could, that could benefit these characters. And yet they're not. They're, the, the priority is to be the, the male overdrive here. And I think that's my problem. I don't want to stifle creativity necessarily – it's just not thorough. It's not a very it's not a very well written script because it's underserving female characters when there are opportunities to do so. Yeah, you would almost rather them have a world without female characters, like something like Wolf of Wall Street or Pain and Gain, to pick two of my favorite movies to talk about. Um, and they just not try to have that kind of half nod toward female characters that you can't really, right. You don't explain really know what you why do you are not talking to the female characters or not explaining them. Why are they belittled by the men around them? That matters. We think about it as an audience, so we should. It should be addressed in the film. I, yes, feel like I should have had an immediate comeback for that, <laughs> but I mean, I can't disagree with that exact point, except to say that like Thor is a weird white blonde <laughs> Norse god that has Natalie Portman and another female physicist helping around a crazy old white. Also Aryan looking dude. So, I mean, it's tough because the question is, is do I want more Sif, you know, in exchange for something else that I got in Thor 2? Thor 2, maybe I did, but then what am I, what am I losing? I think I will always go back to this point that we're, we're honing in on very specific movies right now. And that might not be that might well, not be what, fair that might that's be, what we said at the beginning is that it's not as useful when applied to right. specific movies but i want 50 percent of the movies that come out in a given year to pass the bechdel test why if that makes sense because i because- want female voices and i want diversity and i want that conversation i just want that to be represented in movies and at the very least if we're going to have a bunch of movies that are entirely from the male perspective which we'd agree are a fine thing then we should have that many movies from the female perspective like that seems like a basic balancing thing that just i mean it's we're so far from having that happen that there's no way for that to naturally happen anytime soon i mean the bechdel test statistics will will go hand in hand with what we talked about last week during trivia oddly enough i think three women directed movies that came out in more than three thousand theaters last year yeah clearly a problem well, I mean, see, that's completely different than the Bechdel test, though, because we're talking about a story finished product test. We're not. But talking these are about... they're indicative of the same problem. Yes, but saying we need more female women directors is something that I can agree with without necessarily deciding whether or not we need a new Bechdel test or not. Well, but... I mean, but you don't like. Wait, wait. I... So what we're saying is that we 
have already gathered all the data that we need from this test because what we need to know is there aren't enough female perspectives in cinema, so we should no, but I think it it's a, I think it becomes interesting from a storyteller's perspective. It's something that I think about, you know, when I thought about it when I was watching Iron Man 3. I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's coming close to passing the Bechdel test. Why is this doing it and other things aren't? I think it's interesting when stories are told, especially within traditional male-driven formats like that, that do make room for the female voices. And it's, I mean, I don't know that it's that interesting if you are a screenwriter, but if you're trying to construct how stories work, when something does or does not pass it, it just tells you something about how this story is being crafted. Yeah, but, like, if there's a female director and a female cinematographer, they're going to be avoiding the male gaze. So Well, female storytellers are infinitely more likely to actually include, like, you know, even in, like, background roles, they're more likely to include women. Like, their films are much more likely to have 50-50 parody in just in all of the people seen on screen. Right, so why apply the test to the finished product when we should be able to just look at whether or not there's a women direct, woman director or woman writer? Well, because we male, like, men can make movies with interesting female perspectives. I mean, look at what Judd Apatow has been able to do shepherding things like Girls and Bridesmaids. Like, you're not going to... like You can't erase the presence of men from being able to improve the presence of women on screen. Yeah. Mm, uh, I... <laughs> I'm just trying to talk about what, when it's helpful to apply this test versus when it's not. I, I, I think, mean, I think we to, have to decide I'm that based to talk on storytelling. Like you're saying, there, not every movie is going to allow for that. If Thor The Dark World is driven by Thor's journey to beat up his brother Loki and take down a male antagonist, I can't, I'm, not, I'm not going to pile on the Bechdel test because of its, its tunnel vision for that adventure story. But if you're going to have something like Pacific Rim, and I know you don't want to dwell on this, but, I mean, if you're going to go out of your way to be like, this is a diverse humanity that's come together to fight monsters, I do want to see that. And I want to know the characters, and I want to have um, a diverse set of voices, and that cannot just be racially diverse. That has to be diverse across the board, because, Jesus, I mean, half this world is female, so why is that not represented in the finished film? Um, I think it just makes sense to have to, to represent and reflect the world that you're trying to capture in a film. And it doesn't seem like they're and that a majority of, of blockbusters do that. Yeah, I mean, but here's the thing is that the thing you're talking about, by the time those decisions are made, those aren't conscious decisions. So what you're asking for is you're asking for a mid-level person to come in and say, like, couldn't this character be a woman? I don't. I'm 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 thinking this is on a screenwriter. This is someone. I mean, you're right that maybe when a screenwriter writes their film, that they conceive many male characters and a few female characters who only talk about the male characters. It's possible, but that is something that needs to be undone. That needs to be a thinking that needs to be shook up. Um, it's not a it's not a like a studio note that needs to happen. This is just something that we should fundamentally strive for. Yeah, like I, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, if you're going to have a studio note that's going to be like, well, can we make this person my daughter-in-law? Because You'll certainly never get that studio note. But <laughs> wait, <laughs> to, which studio note? To, to make... pander to the Bechtel test? No, but I mean, I I don't know. I would imagine. I think that's happening somewhere. I think. There are places where you get women popping up as EMTs or as district attorneys or whatever else. And in a way that someone is probably thinking about it. Like it doesn't have to be a woman, but it is a woman. And that's not the best way to get to have better female voices on screen. But it's at least starting to get the movies to look less male. Katie, yeah, as, as, oh, I'm sorry. Dave, go. Oh, no. I just say I think Girls has moved that television in a great direction in terms of that. There's some nice all-girl content coming up in the next few years. Sorry, go ahead, Patches. Or, uh, or Shonda Rhimes, who has just turned, like, every possible role on television into something that can be played by a woman, which Word. is... Uh, and her shows might not be that great, but what she's doing in terms of actual diversity of uh, race and genders... I feel the exact same way about the show I'm currently addicted to, The Good Wife. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But TV has more opportunity to do it. I will I will say that, that there's sure. more room for that because of the, of the breadth of a, of a TV season and what you can do in 90 minutes. Um, yeah. But I still think that the Bechdel test is an important uh, factoid to examine on a macro level. But I am curious, Katie, just as we wrap up here, and I know this is going to be hearsay, but what did people on the panel really think? I mean, I, I think a lot of, like, some people on the panel were really agreeing with 
what I was saying about how it can be interesting on a film by film basis. More people were kind of talking about what you were that like it's not the most helpful thing to apply everywhere else. And then there were just a lot of kind of getting caught up in like why it is this way. Like it we kind of moved away from the Bechdel test quickly because I think everyone was mostly in agreement about what we're saying here that like it shouldn't be thrown out entirely, but it's not the most useful thing on earth. And then it uh, kind of got, I mean, conversation we don't really have time for now. Maybe we should have next time, but uh, ways to ensure more racial diversity in a similar way, or ways to look out for it, which is, I don't know, maybe the next step. I guess sequels to Pacific Rim is the answer. To I mean, those are happening because of China, right? <laughs> yeah. China, it, thank God for China. Making us diverse and diversity <laughs> spread yeah. through American China culture. is such a welcoming liberal society. That's yes. Yeah. Making us better. <laughs> Never done anything to us. <laughs> on and on, reckless abandon, something's wrong, this is gonna shock them, nothing to hold on to, we'll use this song to lead you That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to review RoboCop or Robert Cop, depending on which one they show us. Matt Singer may uh, get his wish after all. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, rogue agent of the internet, writing at wonderful places like Grantland and Vulture and VanityFair.com. And uh, putting it all on MattPatches.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R Patches. People still write at Matt Patches. On Twitter, and that makes me sad because I can't change it. Someone else owns it. Sad. Anyway, remember, you can go to our website. Have you heard of these things? Websites. Fightinginthewarroom.com. Go on there. Check out our episodes. There's comment sections. There's ways to share. Spread the word on, on, on the podcast. And leave comments and feedback and that sort of thing. Continue this discussion. We'll jump in there. We'll talk. We just want to keep things going. Fightinginthewarroom.com. I like uh, the addition of, have you heard of these things? Like we're doing <laughs> 50s radio ads. Yeah. Are you, have you heard of these things? Websites. <laughs> I'm David Ehrlich. I am no longer working for Film.com. I am a rogue agent. Uh, you can see my Berlin reviews. I only did two for uh, Snowpiercer and the Grand Budapest Hotel on badassdigest.com. And I don't know where my writing will end up next, but Definitely you'll hear about it here. And on Twitter, at David Ehrlich and Criterion Corner. He's in Germany, and things are stressful, and Skype's hard. So uh, he's <laughs> currently of nowhere, but you can find him here at Fighting in the War Room, and find all of us at Facebook.com slash Fighting in the War Room, where we share episodes, and you can talk amongst yourselves, and we'll at least press the like button on all your comments. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You spell that first part, D-A-7-E. You can also find me there on Twitter. Uh, I'm at latino-review.com every Wednesday talking about superhero movie news and reviews, even when there doesn't seem to be any. Uh, you could call us and leave us a voicemail at 914-410-6450, and uh, we're going to bring back the mini segments where we uh, play those voicemails. Not all trivia from here on out, we promise. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair's Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. You can also find the show on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of RoboCop, or BobCop, or Robert Cop, <laughs> who or what is your favorite on-screen law enforcement? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. And if he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light.